Welcome to Bursting the Bubble with Tasha and Orlin. My name is Tasha. I am a senior at Berry College, an international affairs and Spanish double major. And I am Orlin. I'm also a senior here at Berry College. I am um, I'm double majoring in economics and international affairs with a minor in mathematics. Um, so, Bursting the Bubble, uh, Tasha, technically you created that name. So where did the name even come from? Yeah, so here at Berry College, we have something called the Berry Bubble. We are Berry College is on a 27,000 acre piece of land, the largest campus in the world, I, I believe. But we only have a, a student body of uh, 1,800 students. So small, small uh, student body on a huge piece of land. So we call it the Berry Bubble. And but bubbles can be beautiful places. It can be a solace. It can be, you know, a shelter. Utopia. A utopia, exactly, which I think is what they seek to create at Barry. But bubbles can also shield you from reality, and they can be constricting if you cannot find the space that, you know, you need to grow within them. And I, so it was sophomore year, and, you know, this we come to college to grow and find yourself, and I was kind of battling who I am, what I want to do, what's my purpose, and the bubble did, you know, provide me with some answers in a sense. But then there were some things that I was lacking, some things that I didn't feel like I was really getting from here. Mm. And it began to feel constricting. So I was looking for answers outside. And I, that's why the name came from bursting the bubble. But bubbles can be exist in any, any context, in pop culture, in politics, in whatever um, aspect of life that you're talking about. So bursting the bubble here for this podcast will be about us, you know, bursting the bubbles in life and uh, things that affect us and things that are going on currently in the world. And why did you jump on this bursting the bubble train? <laughs> no, absolutely. I think that um, it was intriguing to hear somebody who kind of noticed that for a, for a long time, I felt like I was the only one who kind of, you know, felt mm-hmm. out of place. Um, sometimes it, bubbles create this illusion that it creates a unity, but bubble doesn't necessarily correlate with unity, mm. right? And so I think that you kind of hit like on the various points about this podcast, right, and what we're trying to do. I think one important thing is trying to let people kind of like see how we perceive the world, mm-hmm. right, to see our thoughts and our, and, our, and, our, and our way of thinking just because I feel like a lot of times um, bubbles, with, within bubbles or with outside bubbles, there's always like... Um, a majority and a minority. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like sometimes we don't have the space or like um, the space or the platform to really like talk about certain yeah, things. Yeah, and I did right? mention that we are a predominantly white institution. And we are, yeah, both students of color. So. Absolutely, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're both students of color. So mm-hmm. um, I think that, you know, um, it was interesting to kind of create this because I feel like this could definitely be a platform to, to, um, not only reach out to other people who might feel the same, mm-hmm. but to give people insight on how we, you know how we see the world. Mm-hmm. Because I think that um, a lot of times, um, like you said, bubbles are not realistic, mm-hmm. right? Or they create a utopia that mm-hmm. doesn't really reflect back in the world. And I do think, like, unfortunately, I, I felt the same way as you, where mm-hmm. I felt like I wasn't getting certain things. You know, I was questioning a lot of things, and yeah. um, I wasn't. I was kind of getting more doubts and questions more than answers Mm -hmm. so yeah hopefully you know we're able to create um hopefully we're able to give insight to people and hopefully we're able to um give um (laughs) at its essence burst people's bubbles right yeah you know have them think right and Mm -hmm. have them really like um wonder and really like hopefully um 
see a different perspective that they might not be actually been have been exposed to yeah. right so um so definitely and so today we're actually going to talk about a specific bubble yeah. um and today we're talking about a bubble that i feel like both of us are definitely passionate about right um because this at its um at its core was one of the reasons why we even created this right mm-hmm. um trying to talk about this specific issue because um in any institution you know we go there to not only like find ourselves but how do we basically help our community right how do we make the world a better place and as cheesy as that sounds mm-hmm. right whether you're going into academia or whatever you go into like the late of the labor market you can definitely make an impact right you know because you you control your your um your personal actions your thoughts right that's something you definitely have um autonomy over mm-hmm. so i felt like it it doesn't matter where you go i feel like at the end of the day we should be able to get an education where we can understand the complexities of the world, right? And so I think, like, that's where we kind of, like, um, found, you know, this issue. So, I mean, do you, do you agree with me or do you agree I with do, that? I do, yeah. Just let them know what the bubble of the day. The bubble of the day is at college curriculums, curriculums in high institutions um, of education. And, yeah, as Orlin said, it's very important because colleges are prepping us to go out and change the social and economic and political um, uh, aspects of the world. And it's important that the view and perspective, views and perspectives that they instill in us don't go out and perpetuate existing um, oppressive systems or existing problems. Instead, they should prepare us to go and you know remedy some of these things that um, we see reoccur- recurring. And I did this, I heard about this term a few years ago, um, but I didn't really follow up on it. And then this summer, because of everything that was ha- happening, especially after the murder of George Floyd and after um, the murder of uh, Armand Aubrey, Ar- I started to think about the the value of the black body. Why is it that people find it so hard to devalue and demean the black, the black form, the black body all over the world? And I also started to, th- um, to think about um, whether people do see value in us, value in- intellectually in black people, just the worth now essentially of the black mind. And the more I was reading about it, I found out about this movement that was started in the um, University of Cape Town in South Africa by the student body called um, Rhodes Must Fall. And Cecil Rhodes, are you familiar with Cecil Rhodes? I've heard about Cecil Rhodes. Yeah. Um, and I've done my small research about it, but I think it's a movement that not only did I learn like afterwards, like mm-hmm. a couple of years after mm-hmm. it actually happened, but I feel like it's a movement that a lot of people really don't know about. And no, I feel like it's such US, an important really. movement, right? Yeah. And even like in Latin America or, mm-hmm. you know, if you're not part from like Cape Town or that near, yeah. you know, um, in that near African movement, you kind of are oblivious to do. Which what, I yeah. mean, things, you know, since I started in Africa, I don't really get the airtime that, you know. That they need to. That yeah. they need to. Mm-hmm. But so the Roads Must Fall movement started in the University of Cape Town, and they were, it started off basically call, um, them asking for the college to take down the statue of Cecil Rhodes that was in the university. Cecil Rhodes was um, a, Europe, a British um, colonizer, colonized most of Southern Africa, Zambia, Zimbabwe, South Africa, Lesotho. Um, and so that was essentially what they were asking for, take it down. And then it, the movement evolved into them asking, no, decolonize our curriculum, change our curriculum. We want to see ourselves in this school because we know it was not created with us in mind. It was not created for us, but we are here now and we want you to make, you know, the necessary steps 
um, for us it to be inclusive and for it to really prepare us in the ways that we want to go out um, in the world ready to to change you know to change it and so I started to think okay then how how is that happening in the U.S. if it is decolonizing the curriculum and why or how is it colonized? Right. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's a, the, the term here is decolonization. Mm-hmm. Right? And a lot of times when we hear the term colonize or colonizing mm-hmm. or colonization, um, we associate it with land, location, mm-hmm. right? We associate, we're quickly to associate it with like, um, but, you know, with even geopolitics, what, what is geopolitics? But we associate a lot with geopo- geopolitics. But a lot of some colonization is just not geopolitics, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think we had a conversation before where we talked about the politics of, 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 of knowledge. Politics of knowledge, yes. And I think that it's so important to understand that decolonization does not happen necessarily just um, geopolitically, mm. right? It happens in, in just a lot of yeah, different aspects, right? I mean, as right? college students, as you know, people in, in academia, we understand there's a relationship between knowledge and power and it's unfortunately not equally distributed across you know races across um geographical regions and i think that's that's the essence of what decolonizing the curriculum is about addressing an imbalance of power that you know um, reinforces inferiority and superiority complexes absolutely and you know i think like what people what sometimes a lot of people miss if you're not um if you're not the one burdened with the costs of, you know, um, an institution that colonizes mm-hmm, a curriculum, you know, mm-hmm. um, what a lot of people don't kind of don't realize um, is like when we're, you're, you're the when you're the one who has to burden those costs, you have you kind of like wonder where you fit in the world. Yeah. Right. Like you there's not an explanation of like, how is it that we got here? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. When everything it's 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 taught a certain way taught by a certain narrative a specific narrative it does get complicated and and because it's like am i naturally inferior Mm. right Mm -hmm. um is it that i just don't necessarily have a place here yeah because you you don't feel like that you can your reality doesn't correlate with what you're reading your reality does not correlate with what you're doing and that's not to say that you know um these studies and you know these people on these scholars or anything who are writing these narratives they don't have a a voice or or validity in their in their arguments they absolutely do but the problem is like sometimes i feel like it's so much easier to erase and ignore a narrative Mm -hmm. than face the realities of it and that's what it's all about narratives and that we're we're just trying to figure out how is it that the curriculum reinforces this whole thing of you know who's inferior who's superior who's worthy who's valuable who should be listened to who should we you know uh, take or consider valuable sources of knowledge and so to do that today we talked to Dr. Hoyt. Absolutely. So today we um in our show we have Dr. Hoyt. Um Dr. Hoyt um has uh, Dr. Hoyt is an independent scholar. She got her PhD um in history from University of Texas Austin. She um her area of expertise is Latin America, specifically in Argentina, in which she focuses on the Cold War and urban environmental issues. We were able to talk to Dr. Hoyt um, last week, and this is ba- and this was our um, interview. Well, hello, Dr. Hoyt. Thank you for joining us today. And you know, um, I, you know, I was just sharing the sentiment that you know, um, 
some of your students and myself were um, had after your 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 taking your course. Um, what last year? Yeah, yeah. Seems like forever ago. <laughs> I know, I know. With everything that's been going on, it does seem forever ago. But um, so, welcome, Dr. Hoy. Thank you for joining us today. And thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to to share my my knowledge and experiences with you guys. Awesome, 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 Dr. Hoyt. So let's go ahead and get started, Dr. Hoyt. So um, just a quick question. So what does decolonizing the curriculum mean to you? So uh, this is actually a very apt term to describe uh, this effort to revision undergraduate courses, especially. Uh, So when we think about what colonization has meant historically, it refers to a process by which white Europeans and particularly wealthy white European men have taken control of territory and resources throughout the world. And in that process, negated the value of the cultures and identities of those places. So we're thinking, you know, back discovery of the Americas, scramble for Africa, imperialism throughout the global South. Uh, So this also has a very profound impact on the historical record because that record is subsequently written by those quote unquote winners. And by having just a predominant amount of information, especially in terms of history, historian, so I'm very focused on that, but by having those histories written by this one identity essentially, it further silences those voices that aren't white male and western so uh you know we you orlin you mentioned colonization as sort of this physical control but it's also cultural control who's seen as successful capable whose culture is supposedly best it is very much as tasha mentioned the politics of knowledge and so whose knowledge wins out whose experiences are the ones that are repeated are taught become collective memory. So over the past, I, I for me, it was probably about three years ago, I would say that I first started hearing this idea of decolonizing uh, syllabi or decolonizing the curriculum. And so over these past few years, scholars have started to really raise this issue and push uh, faculty in institutions of higher education to reconsider how they choose scholarship to examine in their courses and what topics are taught in those courses. So it is a process by which professors incorporate more diverse scholarship, both in terms of content and issues covered and the identities of and experiences of the scholars who produced that work. And I would say that the goal of decolonization in, uh, in the curriculum is to actively recognize and include include uh, diverse voices and points of views that are historically excluded in our respective disciplines. Uh, and so there isn't just one narrative, there isn't just one experience that gives us truth and understanding about the world. One narrative gives us one view, and we know that there's a myriad of ways through uh, by which people can experience this world and generate knowledge. And when we go through this process of decolonizing our syllabi, we correct limited biased understandings within our respective fields. Also, we work to move away from that automatic tendency to accept quote-unquote established scholarship, which often leads towards white and male, 
and open up ourselves to a more varied set of ideas. And finally, it's also an opportunity to show our students that there is a place for them in our disciplines. And so, you know, you can see yourself in that history. You can see yourselves in whatever realm that is. So, yeah, just to sort of sum it up. So this is a relatively new effort. Relatively. I'm a historian. I have a very long lens here. Uh, <laughs> but one that has produced changes in the way that many of us build our courses. Um, you know, this wasn't a mainstream conversation when I was going through grad school. We might talk a little bit about, you know, certainly engaging with scholarship from Latin America, but not in these terms of representation, not in terms of diversity and inclusion. And so now there's a lot more support out there through professional organizations and individual scholars to get this work done. So yeah, there we go, decolonizing the curriculum. Awesome, Dr. Hoyt. Thank you for, for, for that really, um, you know, thorough um, understanding of <laughs> mm -hmm. because, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, this is why exactly we wanted you over here because sometimes as students, right, between Tasha and myself, it's difficult to explain to people what this means, right? And sometimes mm -hmm. a lot of people see us as like, you know, of yeah. course, of course, you guys will say that, right? You know, you know, yeah. and so they dismiss arguments completely. And so, thank you for bringing that academic perspective and sharing even your personal stories about it. Now, um, I'm just gonna go ahead and jump to, I guess, like you know, the 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 the, the, the million dollar question, right? Okay. And it's like, why is decolonizing the curriculum so important, or why, you know, like for those people who are listening and might not, and you know, they're like, yeah, yeah, we get it, we get it, okay, we get it, the narrative is here, this is and that, but but I guess the question is like, why is it important? And so um, I just want to go ahead and um, let you um, answer that. Yeah, no, that's a really big question. And so, you know, it's very important to ask why, why do all of this work? And so I think it comes down to two very important goals. So one is to show our students of color, especially, or, you know, our gender diverse students, students from different religious backgrounds, whatever the case may be, that we see them. We as instructors, when we diversify, when we decolonize our syllabi, we say that we recognize their struggles, we recognize their experiences, and we treat it as truth. We give it legitimacy. And we also, therefore, provide a space to discuss those experiences and contextualize them. To, uh, you know, I think one of the problems is that sometimes uh, uh, many individuals feel as though they are invisible or that their struggle is not received by those in power. And so by diversifying, by decolonizing our syllabi, we create that space. We legitimize those experiences and give these help these individuals find their voice. We're not giving anything, we're helping. Um, and so by also providing contact with diverse scholars, we show that there is a place for these students in our respective fields, that not everything is produced by like some white dude from the West. So I think it's very important in terms of creating those connections, sharing those experiences and treating them as truth because they are. And so the other yeah. side of why this is very important is that uh, everyone in general just needs to understand that a lot of what we're seeing today is nothing new. So mm -hmm. as a historian, I can show students that 
there is a deep history behind this uh, this oppression, be- behind this violence against certain groups. And I know I've done my job when students start talking about the presence connections with that past and start to recognize that those problems haven't gone away and haven't been fixed. They realize that there's still work to do. And so we break students from this illusion that everything is okay, that uh, these things, as you mentioned, Orly, they, they're not coming out of nowhere. They've been there for a very long time. And you can't fix a problem if you don't recognize that it's there to begin with. And so some of what you know is happening with, uh, especially this call for patriotic education, is very dangerous. Because all of that's that will do is further marginalize and uh, certain groups and create even more violence against them. Thank you, Dr. Ho. We really appreciate that. Now, just to kind of like follow up on that. So, you know, you mentioned that decolonizing the curriculum is something fairly new from the lens of a historian, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I, I noticed that... Um, in your curriculum, in your classes specifically, you've been doing this for a bit, right? I mean, this is, you know, um, I've, I've talked to Miro and um, other <laughs> students, um, and you've been doing, um, you know, this decolonizing syllabus in your class for a bit. So has decolonizing the um, syllabus happened before or, you know, have scholars tried to do this before the mainstream, you know, this mainstream movement? I mean, I have no doubt that that's been going on for a good long time. And certainly, you know, I'm not inventing the wheel here or anything like that. For me, it's been coming to the sort of growing awareness of this conversation and how I need to be a part of it. So past two, three years, that's really been on my mind in the design of my courses. But, you know, plenty of scholars, especially scholars of color, have been doing this work that our, you know, gender diverse scholars have been bringing in uh, more contemporary work on gender and sexuality. Uh, Without a doubt, it's been going on for a long time. But because of this uh, aware public awareness that has grown so much over the past few years. Now it can kind of be seen as maybe not an organized movement, but a more cohesive call to action rather than a strictly individualized thing. So just because you're a woman doesn't mean you have to do all the heavy lifting on gender equality. Just because mm-hmm. you're a person of color doesn't mean you have to do all the heavy lifting on racial and ethnic identity. So mm-hmm. I think one of the best things that perhaps this decolonizing the syllabus conversation started is to help all of us realize we all have to be a part of that. It can't just be left up to one group or one set of individuals to deal with. Yeah. Yes, doc- Dr. Hoy, we appreciate that. I mean, wow, I think, you know, if you could see the touch in my face right now, we're like, <laughs> whoa, right? Like, yes, yes, yes. Um, you know, we're almost like snapping our fingers here. <laughs> um, absolutely. I think, you know, and um, I'm going a little bit, you know, on the tangent here just for a quick second. But That's I okay. feel like, you know, um, we as brown students sometimes are looked up to explain, you know, yeah. what's going on, right? And, and you know, educate, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, mm-hmm. and, and what people don't realize is it's tiring. Yeah, it is. It we'll is. We don't know that it much. Is. Absolutely, right. And sometimes people don't realize that um, 
when there's not a, a narrative for us, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes we can't explain it ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, right. you know, we're being asked to create a narrative that has been kind of shut down mm-hmm. and at the same time validate our our, 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 our emotions and validate um, you know, our reasoning behind it, right? Um, what I tell people is like, you know, um, emotional it's logical to a to to an extent right like you know pe- people feel what they feel for a reason it's mm-hmm, not you mm-hmm. know it's just not one day you wake up and you're just like angry right no you know you 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 woke up for you know you you have these um understanding of the world based on your experiences right and so that's very important and i appreciate you saying that now you know going to more of the academic side here right uh, dr yeah. hoyt uh, how does academic freedom and tenure play a role in decolonizing the curriculum so this is kind of, it's a little bit niche, but also very important because I think a lot of students don't really realize what it, what goes into building a course. And one of the things I think most students need to realize is that your professor more than likely has not been trained to teach. We've been trained mm-hmm. to be scholars. We are trained to think and research and produce knowledge. That's mm-hmm. not the same as teaching in terms of pedagogy, in terms of curricular development. Those are two very separate realms. So for a lot of us, uh, when we get our first jobs, we are just treading water (laughs) by the day. So, you know, and there's a lot of learning along the way, trial and error. If, man, the things I did as a professor in the early days, I'm like, that didn't work. Uh, so you learn from those mistakes, but, um, that's another way of getting at one of the big problems in your question, which is it's very individualized, Mm. uh, to create a course. It's, you have the absolute freedom to do whatever you want in that course to come up with the, the, the topic for the course, the readings, the assignments and everything. And so that's great, right? You get full control. So how you as a scholar see the world or see this, this topic in your discipline, you can create all this stuff around it. And ideally, uh, your institution's not going to really uh, have a whole lot of control over that. And yeah, I would say that's true for a lot of us. Uh, not everywhere, but for most part, we have this freedom. But that also means that if you want to undergo this process of diversifying the curriculum, I'm um, sorry, uh, decolonizing your curriculum, you're kind of on your own in some ways mm-hmm. uh, because it takes a lot of work to go through and essentially learn new things for some of us. It does take a lot of work. And then identifying, okay, so I have all of these books here and they're all by white dudes. So how am I, where am I going to find women, where I'm going to find people of color and bring them into this conversation. So there's the vetting of sources, there's revising uh, assignments, so you can ensure that diversity and those key questions come into that work. It takes a lot of work. And not every institution is very good at helping faculty do this work. So you're largely Mm -hmm. doing it on your own. so that can be very problematic and also very much a deterrent to some people. Not everyone. There's there's good movement towards this now, but there are some that, you know, this might be a little too much. The other issue is that a lot of faculty members at institutions of higher education do not have job security. So mm-hmm. if you're untenured, you're very vulnerable. 
if you are contingent faculty, and so I mean people that are on contracts semester to semester, year to year, like lecturers and adjuncts, mm -hmm. uh, you, are, you are in a very precarious situation. And so one of the things that's often used to determine whether or not you get to keep your job or get tenure are student evaluations. So if you're at an institution that where these questions of diversity and inclusion are not uh, very prominent and maybe the demographics skew one way or another, uh, it can be very uh, dangerous to your employment to raise these questions mm -hmm. and to challenge some students. And certainly you see these experiences shared by faculty on social media, in articles about how efforts to raise this kind of awareness uh, result in negative student reactions. And if student evals are overwhelmingly negative or not even overwhelmingly, a few negative comments can be used by administrators to uh, terminate that person's position. So mm -hmm. there's some risk there for faculty to who want to do this work, but are afraid that they also might lose their livelihood over it. And the job market for academics is really bad right now. So, um, you know, my point here is that academic freedom is a really great opportunity to have these hard conversations, but it can be, it's a lot of work to rebuild a course and not everyone and not everyone has the individual initiative or institutional support to do that work not only that there are very real negative consequences if students are not into what you're doing and you might be uh, a more precarious in a more precarious position so there's great opportunity here here but there's also a lot of risk unfortunately and I haven't seen anything that has led me to believe that there's been uh, significant institutional change across the board to sort of work with faculty to make these changes and to value that work and mitigate this risk. So this is still something that is developing, but also as we kind of just discussed, it's a relatively new thing in higher ed. So what is this process of changing your curriculum look like? So the process for me, it was sort of this coming to Jesus moment with my mm -hmm. syllabi, sitting down and being like, all right, what do I have and what do I need? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for me, it was realizing, you know, looking at, say, my environmental history course, which I love. Uh, but, you know, looking at it and realizing, wow, for that class assignment, everyone picked something from the United States or Europe. Nobody mm -hmm. picked anything from the rest of the world. So how do I get students to maybe not do what they already know and try and learn something new, pursue a new perspective? So, or looking at my reading list, at the articles, the primary sources, and the monographs, the books that were assigned and being like, okay, so we got a lot of white people here. So how do we change this? Mm -hmm. And just looking for those sources. Um, one, so I just sort of mentioned that institutionally, I haven't seen a whole lot of effort to support faculty in this process. But the great thing is that we have social media. Social media is the best for academics. Um, 
maybe not always social media can be bad but overall <laughs> uh the things like twitter are actually very active for academics and so you can get up there and say hey Anybody know of any readings by indigenous scholars on, mm. you know, colonial Latin America that I can incorporate mm. into my course? And boom, you are going to have a dozen people telling you all kinds of great scholarship that can be built into your syllabus right then and there. If you say, you know, ha- you know, I have this assignment and I really want to make sure that students, you know, pick good primary sources and move beyond Western, a, a Western-centric notion. So what are some other primary sources I can bring in that show a global South perspective? And boom, people are going to give you a dozen different things once again. And there's also uh, professional organizations and institutions that are putting together websites and materials for free access online. So you could go to the National History Center and they have a whole page dedicated to decolonizing the syllabus for historians. And a lot of other disciplines have started creating those resources as well. And so while there is that pressure on the individual faculty member to do this work, to decide it's important and do it, there's more and more resources out there uh, that one can access to find new readings, to build new assignments. Uh, So, you know, that's one way by really changing the sort of nitty gritty of the content. The other is how you sort of approach that material within the classroom. And so Mm -hmm. some of it's sort of basic pedagogy, making clear the sort of lesson objectives and the themes that are at play, Uh, but also finding ways to really kind of force students to have these conversations because Mm. not everybody, you know, Overwhelmingly, I would say, students are not very comfortable talking about issues of identity, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly race. Um, And so you have to find ways that make it so they aren't feeling, you know, some, you know, you know, you want people to sort of reflect on themselves, but you also don't want them to feel persecuted or Mm -hmm. judged immediately because that's going to shut everything down real fast so good thing as a historian i can show them something from 19th century and they're like oh that's 19th century we can kind of unpack that another time but at least then i can get them to talk about the image and so for scientific racism can pull any number of advertisements from the 19th century that are just horrific in terms of their uh in terms of racism but Mm -hmm. it gets students talking about it so we can start to unpack the problems with such depictions, and then start to think about their long-term impact in terms of global power, resource extraction, uh, treatment of people of color. And so we're able to get somewhere there. Uh, More advanced students, thank goodness for for you guys in modern Latin America last year, y'all were great, because (laughs) advanced students tend to be much more comfortable, more willing to undergo these conversations. And so we're able to do a little bit more. So Orlan, you mentioned uh, talking about defining Latin America. Such an important question because it's sort of deceptively simple. People will be like, well, it's everything south of the United States. Like, <laughs> no. <laughs> also, you know, we know that Latin America is made up of all these different places. But you, as you mentioned, you're from Guatemala. That's not Mexico. And Mexico is not Brazil. And they're not Argentina. And so Mm, you start to realize that there are these very monolithic terms that are meant to be catch-alls, but actually can do harm in negating 
uh, individual identities and nuances. And also even the term Latin America, as we discussed, is an imperial term. It comes right. from uh, the Napoleon guy who tried to take over Mexico. So, um, the Napoleon guy. So yeah, we <laughs> were able to break down these deeper issues and really understand how they're problematic, but in a way that helps us to see the sort of reality or the truth instead. So we, you know, I would imagine that a lot of y'all now you see Latin America and you're like, you know, it's not just Latin America. It's so much more than that. And so with the redesign of the syllabus, that's great, but you can't just put something on the table and hope somebody's going to pick it up. You got to find ways mm -hmm. that make people pick it up and think about it. And that can be very challenging, but also very rewarding. Again, it's so worth it when students are like, huh, that really reminds me of what this conversation today is. It's like, yeah, because it didn't go away. It wasn't solved. So <laughs> absolutely, and you know, I'm I'm glad that you know, I, and I know, like right now, we're talking a lot about it, like the social sciences, humanities side aspect, mm -hmm. but we can see this in everywhere, right? Like, um, you know, in um in uh, the medical field, for example, right? Right. A lot of the research is not, it's very biased against Black people, right? I mean, you know, you look at the statistics, right, and it's like the the, the you know the likelihood that w Black women die during pregnancy is out. Astonishing! It's oh no, the maternal mortality rate mm -hmm. for Black women is just like it's 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 not something that should be tolerated in mm -hmm. in a country like ours anywhere. Period. And mm -hmm. so you know it's uh it's kind of important because there are a lot of disciplines where uh this conversation has yet to really reach the pitch that it has in the humanities and social sciences and the arts to insert as well. Uh, so, you know, I think about my environmental history course that I absolutely love, you know, had all this contact with like non-humanities students, which was, you know, kind of refreshing, but also very important for realizing that these questions might not have been fully raised by other disciplines. And so it was an opportunity for me to say, hey, I'm glad you like John Muir, but kind of a racist. Hey, I'm glad you like national parks. They're beautiful. They're wonderful. But they are built on the land stolen from the indigenous people. Mm -hmm. And people of color have been excluded from those spaces historically. And so it's a really great opportunity to say the environment. I know we like to think of it and such, but the environment is not some neutral good. I don't know if that's the appropriate term, but it's not without its own politics because mm. the environment's about power. Who has that space? Who controls that space? Who takes the resources from that space? Uh, who's responsible for the damage or who's forced to live with the damage in that space? These are all deeply political questions and also ones very much tied to these issues of identity. Uh, in terms of uh, environmental justice and health and welfare and economic opportunity. So there, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done still across the board in terms of uh, decolonizing the syllabus. Um, so, but I think there's a push, there's a growing awareness and hopefully we start to see accruing uh, results from that over the next few years. Yeah, I hope so too. So yeah, 
do students have a role in decolonizing the curriculum? And if so, what does that look like? You know, I think this is really important. So we talked a lot about the faculty side of thing. And so when I say a lot about what I'm about to say, it's because I have this background where I've taught at institutions where the student body is predominantly white. And mm -hmm. so a lot of my approach is based on this idea that I have a lot of people who need to be reached and understand that they do have a role to play in this. Um, so my first thought for students in sort of engaging with this concept is to go with it, to try mm -hmm. and learn something from this. Yes, for some students, their initial reaction is discomfort and uncertainty because yeah. it's probably a new realm of understanding. It probably that also forces some students to think about personal relationships or their own worldview in ways mm -hmm. that, yeah, it might be a, a very uncomfortable thing. But that's good because you're there. that's realizing that there's some disconnect. And we have to explore that. We have to get comfortable with that in order to make progress to get to somewhere new. We can't just stay in our bubble and believe everything's going to be all right. That's mm -hmm. That attitude's not going to help anybody. And so very just straight up, the most important thing is to do it. Go on that journey and not resist it. Just see where it takes you. Uh, the next thing I would advise students to do is when you is, uh, talk with your instructor, ask them why what's being covered is being covered. We wanna tell you, we have a method to our madness. Really, we do. We put a lot <laughs> of time and effort into this and a lot of thought. And there's a reason why those readings, those topics are in the syllabus. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't have to be antagonistic. It's not meant to be, but it's meant to demystify why we're doing what we're doing. And I think that's a very healthy conversation to have with your students and to raise with your instructor. Uh, and that can help create buy-in also, I think, for, for instructors to, so that students know that there is a reason behind what you're doing. Um, so I think that that's really important. And the other thing I would advise for students is to speak up. So if you don't see yourself if you don't mm. see the black experience, the indigenous experience or whatever, you know, LGBTQ or, you know, your gender identity in that uh, curriculum, talk with your instructor, ask them, how can you bring that into the mix? Mm. There's no, our a syllabus isn't set in stone. It is generally, it's highly recommended that faculty treat it as something fluid, as something that can be dynamic and responsive to a class or a set of students. And so the uh, most instructors, I believe, would be very amenable to recommending additional scholarship or, you know, uh, uh, turning certain assignments into what's, what the student seeks. There's nothing wrong with that, with engaging your instructor in those conversations and finding those opportunities. Um, because, you know, here, you know, it's hard. To, again, it's hard work to do this. And, you know, there might be moments where you don't quite get everyone or everything in there. And so this is a chance to be like, oh, okay, well, yeah, let's find that. Let's build it in. It's a good opportunity for us to keep doing that work, keep evolving, keep moving with y'all. And so 
I think uh, to sort of summarize all of this is for students to recognize that this effort at decolonizing the syllabus, it's meant to correct historical wrongs as much as we can, but also rec recognize uh, the value of diverse voices and experiences that, and recognize how they've been denied by those in power. So this is an act of social justice. This is a, a, a very real need in the world, uh, a wrong to be righted. And so um, I think a lot of us are very much on board with that. And we want y'all to be on board with that because y'all are the ones training to go out and do jobs and have your own mark in the world. And we want you to go out there and leave a really good mark. <laughs> Absolutely. We can, we'll try our best. Yeah, and we will try our best. Well, you know, Tasha and I want to thank you, Dr. Hoyt, for joining us today. Um, thank you for uh, the uh, profound insight that you gave us. I mean, I think, you know, um, hearing it from academic is completely different from hearing it from students. Mm -hmm. And so um, thank you for your knowledge. And, um, you know, and thank you for taking your time and being here today. Yeah, thank you so much. Man, it's my pleasure. I'm always happy with you guys. So... Thank you so much for the invite and the chance to share this experience and hopefully help uh, people understand what this means. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Hoy. Do take care now. Thank you. Have a good one. So it was a very intriguing conversation that we have with Dr. Hoyt, mm -hmm. right? Um, I, I think that she was able to um, <laughs> put it into a, a, a a framework that we would have never been able to do. No, um, no, because yeah. we're not really, you know, we're student we're students at the end of the day and I think sometimes it's unfair for us to try and figure out what where am I how, how do I fit why is it that people don't see the value in me because we are we are learning so for her who has done you know the work and she has the credentials it was good to first absolutely and I think yeah. and I think you know the reason why I mentioned that right mm -hmm. it was because I you know I want anybody who's hearing this to understand that you're right, we are students, mm -hmm. right? And we're trying to learn this ourselves, mm -hmm. right? We, uh, This is not something that we're saying like, oh, we got all the answers, mm -hmm. right? You know, you know, Tasha, you know, you should might I as mean, well give Tasha her PhD, right? You, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, right? You mm -hmm. know, like, oh my God, somebody give us our PhDs, right? We know all of it. No, you know. I mean, if you could, that would save us absolutely, a lot of money. Absolutely, a lot of because, you know, student debt, oh, you already know. But that's another <laughs> conversation. Swimming. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so absolutely. So um, I, I, I do appreciate Dr. Hoyt because I do think that um, if you were able to have a class with Dr. Mm -hmm. Hoyt, you will know that even before the idea of like decolonization, um, decolonizing the curriculum even came about, Dr. Hoyt has been doing it for a while. Mm -hmm. um, she's really been trying um, a, a lot to challenge um people's perceptions of Latin America. And I think that is so important, right? I think yeah. that is important because, um, like we mentioned, I think in order to understand the totality of of, of oppression, inequalities, mm -hmm. racism, anti-blackness, mm -hmm. whatever you name it, you have to understand where it's coming from. Yeah. You have to understand how... It's not new. It's not it's new. It's not news. It's not new. You know, it's, it's interesting because, and I'm glad you said that, because um, a lot of times when I have conversations with people, mm -hmm. uh, it seems almost like they invalidate your opinions by saying, hey, you know, stop feeling that way. Or like, you know, or hey, if you just do this, it may, you know, you you, mm. you know, like, hey, work yeah. harder. Be grateful. Be yeah, grateful, right? There's always a solution, yeah. you know, for how mm -hmm. you feel, right? Mm -hmm. But a lot of times those people really don't understand how rooted 
this is, right? How rooted your your problems are, right? Mm-hmm. It was because of Dr. Hoyt that I realized that, you know, my family fought in the Guatemalan Civil War. And wow. that was one of the main reasons why we migrated to, to, to America, right? Wow. And yeah. so it's like, you know, I felt with Dr. Hoyt, I did feel like, oh, you know. Yeah. And I think you're lucky to have, you know, to have had Dr. Hoyt at least in your four years at Barry. For me, that the professor that I feel like has really done the most to diversify their curriculum is Dr. Kirsten Taylor, professor um, in the international uh, government, political science and international affairs department here at Barry. And I did ask her to give us, you know, a little insight on why she thinks it's important to uh, diversify this, her syllabus. And this is what she had to say. Thanks, Tasha and Orlin, for inviting me to talk about how I incorporate diverse voices into my classroom. So ironically, there is something about my discipline that has made it resistant to incorporating new and diverse voices. My discipline of international relations, which is a subfield of political science, has its origins in World War II, and some of the earliest scholars were really interested in studying the causes of great power war, and then later uh, Cold War and nuclear weapons and nuclear war and so forth. And with that transition to sort of Cold War politics, there was also a transition to more the more scientific study of political science and international relations. And as that transition occurred, sort of politics kind of got lost, not because people didn't care about them, about politics, but because our explanations for behavior tended to focus less on the human condition and human interactions and more on material factors that um, constrain or facilitate behaviors. And um, there's another problem with this change, uh, this transformation, which is to the extent that we theorize to inform policy choices, um, we've become less relevant because we're not so focused on the human interactions. And so there's a growing movement of scholars who are interested in making IR more representative of the world that we study. And um, I've been trying to follow that lead and incorporate more voices into my own courses. For the past four or five years, at least, I've been trying to incorporate more voices from the global south. And there are very interesting critiques there of the Western canon and its applicability to understanding issues involving countries in the global south. Um, that I'm not suggesting we throw out the canon, but just uh, I do believe it's important to incorporate these alternative perspectives, particularly since countries of the global south represent a majority of the world's population. This year, I've also been incorporating, incorporating race into my curriculum because, frankly, there's a racial dimension to so many global political issues, and that concept of race simply hasn't been studied much in the canon. So if we don't study it, we can't know if it's important or if it's not. And uh, so I have a, uh, I've incorporated a bunch of readings this semester in my classes so that, at least in the classroom, we can begin to have those kinds of discussions. Wow. I mean, wow, you know, um, first, thank you, Dr. Taylor. Right, yeah, for, thank you so much. Thank you so much um, for giving us the very frank explanation, right? Because I think... She did struggle to, like, keep it, you know, brief, because I know she has a lot to say about it. So thank you, DT. You know, for absolutely. Thank you, DT. And I mean, I think, you know, there were some powerful things that she said there. Yeah, right? I and think one thing, one important thing she noted was that we're not suggesting that we just throw out the Western canon, as she put it, <laughs> that is not at, at all what we're we're saying. But to, and we're not even asking, telling professors, okay, this is what you have to put A B C D. 
we're tr- asking you to go back and you know look at your syllabus, your curriculum, and ref- and see whether it is representative of the world that we live in. See whether it is accommodating to you know to the st- diverse students in in your class. Whether it is accommodating to the diversity in the in the world. Like we're not suggesting you know just starting from scratch and not listening to the dead old white people. What, Tasha? Do you mean I've been lied to? I thought that's exactly what we were trying to do. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, and I'm kind of glad you you know, you know, brought that point because, honestly, that was the first thing that hit me too, mm-hmm. right? Because I think, like, there's a mis... Underst- yeah, there's a misunderstanding mm-hmm. of what exactly we're asking for. Mm-hmm. A lot of people just make it seem like we're just like, just throw it all in the fire, no. you know. You know, revolution. You know, like mm-hmm. which some not. people do are all for that. Absolutely, that would be interesting to see. But I, I'm not there yet. <laughs> no, and absolutely right. Like I mean, but there's extremism everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't really just correlate it with like, mm-hmm. you know. Of course, there's always going to be people who want to overthrow the government and. Mm-hmm. You know, decolonizing the curriculum doesn't necessarily like led to that. That's always been there, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's different um, things that people are like, yeah, let's overthrow the government, you know. And so, but I think like a lot of times when we talk about these issues, that's the first thing that's thrown about to us, right? Anti-westerns, yeah, right, yeah, um, fascists, oh, right, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, absolutely, go back to your country. Oh. You know, if you're not happy here, right, like, you know, mm-hmm. if you're not wanting to follow Western ideals, then, you know, go back to your country. Yeah. But I think that it's 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 not a valid thing, right, because it's not that we're saying, like we said, like, you know, I'm kind of, like, being redundant this one, but it's not like we're saying, like, let's just throw it all, all, all completely away. No, what we're saying is, like, that's not the only narrative. Mm-hmm. What we're saying is that that narrative has caused problems, and those problems are being exemplified every single day in our lives, yeah. right? And the fact that I don't, we don't understand how to really like mitigate these issues, mm-hmm. and at the same time we're we're learning about a reality that we're we're seeing this might be sometimes a little bit too simplistic. Then of course we're gonna have like some type of anger, mm. right? Some yeah. type of uncomfort, yes. right? Because it's like. This doesn't explain how we got here. No. <laughs> right? Yeah. The, you know, this doesn't explain how we got mm-hmm. here, right? Um, another thing that I think sh- it was very sh- powerful, what she mentioned, was the Global South. Mm-hmm. Right? A lot of times the Global South is seen as wasteland. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's seen as, you know, in, in quoting, like, you know, I, I don't even know how to, like, put this in non-cursing terms. You know, the... Um, can they bleep stuff out? Can you bleep stuff out? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Shit holds. Con- sh- shit hold. Oh, yeah. You yeah. know. You know. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. You, you already know. Yeah. You already know. So, because they're perceived that way, a lot of people disregard their history. A lot of people disregard. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't even know where they're, like, they're their located. Their value. Yeah. Their yeah. worth. And that's that's really where I was coming from. I am Kenyan American, and I have gotten to see how um, Africa in general is represented in American classes, and it's um, it's a little embarrassing, you know, as as a Kenyan, as an African, to see it's it's just so so basic, no complexity, no just nothing, and that's yes. Uh, so I, I do understand where you're coming from <laughs> with that yeah no absolutely and, I, and, and you know a lot, you know uh, and so people don't realize like 
once things are perceived in that manner, mm-hmm. how do you value those people? Yeah. Right? How do you value those those those, those individuals? And so, um, <laughs> you know, I, I realize that here in the United States, we love a lot of blanket terms. Latin America. Yeah. Africa, some people still have a it's hard a time country. believing that it's not a country. <laughs> yeah. No, I've had professors here, and I think we've had a professor together, yeah, who had men, who had used the word um, Africa. And, uh, in a, no, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to, you know. Okay, but, you tell but, me. I don't remember, but wow. Yeah. And I think, like, the reason why um, you might not remember is because it was done in a manner where, like, people just don't catch it anymore. Mm, right? It's yeah. so... I drown people out all the time also, so that's <laughs> not news. <laughs> uh-huh. No, but absolutely. I mean, we will, um, you know, and it's not a job to police people either. Mm, no, no. No, right? It's, it's not our job to correct, mm-hmm. you know, and police people. Yeah. But, yeah, so, you know, the fact that um, Dr. Taylor brought the idea of the global south, I think, like, it's, it's, it's very important. A lot of people don't really understand the complexities, like you said, right? Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that I felt like, you know, she, she mentioned is how difficult it is for academics of color to go into these fields when they're technically not made for them yeah i don't know if you caught that right 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 Mm -hmm. right. like you know she's like there's a growing movement to be more inclusive right but if 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 an academic field is not made for me to go there in the first place how can i share my insight right and i think well to kind of sum sum things up it's it's more than a, a lack of inclusion and information on these um, diverse peoples from around the world, from your own state, from your own county, from, you know, it's a, more than a lack of inclusion. It's more than mistaking Africa for a country and Latin America for Latin Americans for Mexicans. It's about a hidden curriculum that allows for, you know, belittling and debasing and just dehumanizing of other people. And a curriculum that maintains these divides between people and kind of results in the same in the inability to recognize the sameness the humanity or the worth in another human being that's that's what we're trying to that's a bubble that we're trying to burst and yeah before we go i just want people to understand that black minds have value black you know black people are worthy and black lives matter at me (laughs) (laughs) absolutely and that's not to say that you know Another misconception is like the idea of like black lives means no other lives matter. And you know what's interesting to me? It's like, you know, a lot of times when a baby cries, right? Mm-hmm. You're not telling the baby why why are you crying? You know, you you're you're making me uncomfortable, right? No, you, you wanna see why the baby's <laughs> crying and you and you wanna make sure that you know You should try try that. <laughs> that would probably help so many parents worldwide. Absolutely, right? Mm-hmm. So to me it's crazy when there's an outcry, mm-hmm. it's always like why are you, uh, right? Like, wow, you know, you, I'm yeah. grateful. Mm-hmm. How you dare know? you? How dare you? How mm-hmm. dare you say that your lives matter? Mm-hmm. The fact that we're here in the first place, is, it should be astonishing. The fact that, you know, a lot of people don't really sit back and kind of like analyze the, the difficulties that black people have to go through every single day. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, hopefully after people listen to this podcast, they, they, they're taking, not only will they, take um what they learning in a different direction but you know at the end of the day we're college students you know we're paying for an education so 
if you're not getting the education that you feel like it's worth it, mm-hmm. demand it. Wow, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. If professors are doing their thing in trying to decolonize the curriculum in their way, well, students need to help in that movement. Yeah. Right? Um, unfortunately, Dr. Hoyt attempted, and I felt like not only that she wasn't valued enough, mm. but um, they lost somebody who I felt like challenged people's thinking and thoughts. Well, I didn't get the opportunity to meet her, but a lot of her students Absolutely. say that. You know, and, and, and so um, she was a safe space mm-hmm. for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so people lost that, right? I lost that, yeah. right? And mm-hmm. so um, if professors are fighting the fight, then students should definitely help them with that fight, right? Well said. And so, you know, I think, like, for example, another professor, um, Dr. Hickman has War Crimes and Genocide class now, right? Mm-hmm. The books that we're reading are an array of different, you know, authors, yeah. uh, diff- uh, different scholars. And we're learning how narrative does freaking matter, yeah. right? Narr- yeah. Narr- and we've, um, even the first book, right, it, it talked about how, like, academia sometimes has one narrative, and it doesn't mean that it's right. No. It doesn't mean that it's mm-hmm. right. And I think that that was one of the most important lessons I took out of that class, right? How do we, how, how do we get as close as possible to the realities and complexities? that we face every single day. Yes. Well said. Now, do you want to talk about what's in the news? Absolutely, because I think that this podcast came right on time, right? <laughs> it did. <laughs> I, um, I think so. So um, I know that the administration has launched what they called a... The patriotic education. Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so I'm a little bit confused of what that is. Um Mm-hmm. Um, especially because, um, well, it did come after like they cracked down on federal anti-racism training a few no, weeks earlier. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's a replacement for what he felt was un-American, um, about those trainings. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad we mentioned that. And, you know, another misconception that people have is like, just because you criticize the country, it, I don't know where it just makes you no. more un-American. It no. makes you... I think, yeah, for loving your country, you should love it, you know, in all its glory and all its gore because there's no perfect country. And I think you're trying to to hide and to kind of just paint over, brush over some of the gory parts of it. That's yeah, let's not get nationalism confused with patronism. Right. right? Let's, mm-hmm. not, let's not get those mm-hmm. confused because those mm-hmm. are two distinct two things. Distinct, and I think in America it's become difficult to call yourself a patriot because when you see things like patriotic education, then now it's like, oh. You're you're taking a you're taking a side. Absolutely, and one thing I tell people right when they when they want to when you know when they're like because I've had people tell me to go back to my country cool. before, right? And when Mexico, t- <laughs> right? Where is it, right? Like what what what, what country, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's Guatemala. By it's way. Guatemala, by the way, exactly, right? Um, but one thing that um, I tell people is that I love this country way too much to see the issues that are going on every single day. Mm-hmm. This country is way too amazing for certain things to slide through i agree and so the fact that i can criticize my country because i consider myself an american in all its ways Mm -hmm. in all its facets and so for me to criticize my country is not out of hate Mm -hmm. it's because americans if you're an american if you're an american right or if you are looking for something better in this country you deserve the chance right and you deserve to be valued yeah because it's a two-way streak, right? Yes, you're in America, 
um, and you are, you know, you you are legally protected under the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and everything. But you also bring worth to the table. Worth. There you we bring go. worth, Back right? Back worth. You bring worth to the table, right? You bring mm-hmm. your knowledge, your experience, your yeah. culture, and that's what makes it so much better. Um, you know, I, I remember I had a professor sometimes telling me that diversity didn't matter. It was the diversity of the mind that matters. Mm. And to me, it's we like... We don't even see that anyway. <laughs> diversity of, you know, intellect. My point exactly. Yeah. We don't even see diversity. But to me, it's like they're correlated, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And because in or- what shapes your mind? What shapes your thought? What mm. shapes you? It's your experience. Yeah. And, and the, you can't have a black experience if you're not black. You cannot have the brown experience if you're not brown. Mm-hmm. So you need those voices. You do. Right, you, you do. need those they voices. they make up the totality of, you know, the American people. They do. And how are you going to send people out into the, into the world if they don't understand it, you know, the, the complexity of it? Absolutely. And so the idea that we have um, an administration pushing one narrative, yeah. it's dangerous. And not only is it dangerous for um, black and brown people, it's dangerous for any college student. It's dangerous for just anybody. Yeah, for growth. For growth, absolutely, mm-hmm. right? Um, inclusivity creates growth. Yeah. You know, and mm-hmm. so it's like when you kind of shut those doors down, then where are we at? What do we have left? I think you've we've said we've said quite quite enough and that's a good place to you know to leave it right to leave it yeah yeah so leave people with that thought right if we keep on going to this route where we're shutting voices down where do we end up and so hopefully people were able to take something from this podcast and hopefully people are able to ask more questions good yeah not Okay, disclaimer, not to your black and brown friends, okay? Because we are, you know, we're not responsible <laughs> we for that education. Yeah. yeah, we don't know everything. We are undergrads too. We can only share our personal experiences, right? But ask, you know, your professors, mm-hmm. right? Where, you know, where can I read to learn more about? Yeah, ask them, what are you doing to diversify your, your curriculum? What are we doing to be, you know, inclusive in our, in our studies? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, once again, hopefully people are able to take something from this podcast yes. and um, something valuable. Yeah. Um, you I are know worthy, by the way. You're you absolutely. And if you're here in this podcast yes. and, you know, you feel like us. You're gorgeous human You being. are amazing. <laughs> and let me tell you something, right? Tasha and I are your friends and we're your number one supporters, yeah. right? Don't come up to me. Don't cut. <laughs> <laughs> He's more friendly than I am. Let's just say that. Okay, but I do look like I have a mean face when I'm walking no, around. No, you don't. Yes, I do. But that's par- partially because I'm low-key kind of. You want that. You want that. He wants people to call him OG. He oh wants to have this whole God. persona. Please. <laughs> walk up to I him. I smell jealousy. That's exactly what I smell. <laughs> All right. That's a good place That's to good. end All right. Well, thank you for anybody who um, was able to jump in into our first episode. Mm-hmm. Um, this was Orlin and... Tasha. Thank you for listening in. And bursting the bubble. Until next episode, right? Mm-hmm. So today we burst the decolonizing curriculum bubble. So thank you guys.